Good morning. It is Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Great to have you with us on Tuesday. We have a great hour planned for you today. And we are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. Learn more and find your plan at Delta Dental Covers Me. Dot com And by the uh, magic of radio, we are going to go right now to a beautiful Norwich, Vermont, and say good morning to Clayton Truder. Clayton, how are you this morning? Doing great, Ken. Thanks for having me on again. Well, it is uh, my pleasure, and I want to give you a, a, a formal introduction here for folks that might not have heard you the, the first time around on uh, WKXL. Uh, Clayton Truder holds a Ph.D. in U.S. History from Boston College, teaches at Norwich University in Northfield, Vermont. He writes about college football and basketball for SB Nation and uh, is the author. This is why we had him on before, folks. He's the author of Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta remade professional sports and that was a terrific book and this one is too i'm holding it right now clayton i'm holding it up to a camera three here and uh, it is called boston ball rick patino jim calhoun gary williams and the forgotten cradle of basketball coaches and uh, clayton just a, a terrific book especially if you're uh, into basketball and especially if you as i did uh, lived through that era uh, in the in the greater boston area so you, you did a terrific job you even mentioned uh, saint anselm college in the book so uh, and that's a little note to local folks here so <laughs> but it's hard to believe clayton that at, that at one time uh, during the 80s, all three of these uh, Hall of Fame coaches uh, were coaching in Boston. Patino at, at BU, Calhoun at Northeastern, and uh, Gary Williams at BC. Unfortunately, you know, for the most part, they were uh, largely ignored by the, the general sports public and most of the media, uh, of course, overshadowed by the pro sports scene in Boston, of course, nobody really knew who these guys were anyway and what they would uh, go on to become. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was a spectacular time, really, in uh, Boston basketball history that, honestly, quite, you know, quite a few did not uh, pay much attention to. Absolutely. Th thank you so much for the kind words about the book. One thing that's interesting to me is even the three coaches themselves, when covering their own Hall of Fame careers and their memoirs, talk very little about this time period, too. Rick Pitino spends like three pages on his time coaching at Boston University. Gary Williams gives five pages to his time at BC. And Calhoun, who's at Northeastern for 14 years, is the most robust of the three. He spends two fairly slim chapters talking about his time at Northeastern. So it's largely been an uncovered period of college basketball history, and that's what got me interested in it. When I was going to grad school in Boston and I taught later on at Northeastern for a while, I would go to college basketball games all the time. I'm just a basketball junkie. And it occurred to me that you had all these Hall of Fame careers that started in Boston at roughly the same time, and nobody had really written about it. So I sat down basically at the beginning of the pandemic looking for a new project, and a lot of these guys playing in this time period were sitting around at home like, like everybody else. So it, it enabled me to interview a lot of people very quickly once I got the idea for the book. 
Yeah, and it, it was a terrific idea because, uh, as you say, it really had never been uh, written about these three, you know, Hall of Fame coaches, as it turned out, uh, coaching in Boston at the same time. But, uh, you know, there was very little interest. I mean, there, there was some uh, at, at points, but uh, overall, I mean, let's face it, uh, Clayton, that you know, Boston is a a pro sports city. Always has, and I'm sure always will be. Oh, w- without question. At best, they were number five on the sports pages. I mean, behind the four major pro sports teams. Even though the Patriots weren't what the Patriots have become, and right. of course, it seems like they're kind of coming back to that a little bit recently. <laughs> but uh, e- even then, the Patriots were way ahead of them in coverage relative to the college basketball teams. Even though they were doing very well, I mean, Northeastern got to the tournament six out of seven years in the '80s. They scored three first-round upsets. BC went to the Sweet 16 four out of five years at one point, and BU went to its first tournament in a quarter century in 1983. So all programs were just humming under those coaches during that time period. But they really had to fight for any any kind of coverage in the Globe or the Herald or on local television. Yeah, and uh, the same is true today. Maybe even truer today uh, than it, than it was then. I mean, there's you know, you, Boston has two around the clock sports radio stations and there is very rarely if ever any mention of the college sports scene really <laughs> no, no. anytime they do it it just sort of feels like they're doing due diligence yeah. they kind of have to you know, if it's bean pot time or one of the teams makes a tournament or bc football is having a good year there's there's kind of a due diligence quality to it but yeah it's certainly overshadowed. No, no doubt about that. And uh, you know, yeah, we talk about uh, how you know Calhoun and, and Patino and Williams were in Boston uh, during uh, the late seventies and into the eighties. And uh, but you think about the uh, the facilities they had, e- even compared to uh, colleges and universities in their same conferences. Uh, the facilities at at the time, anyway, for for BU, BC, and Northeastern were were not ideal whatsoever. Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, you had Northeastern playing at, uh, at at Cabot Gym, which was you know basically like a high school gym. They later moved moved to Matthews, which had been the Boston Arena, which took some time to rehab, and it took took some time for them to draw a crowd. Even when they were when they were finally when they were finally really strong in the early '80s, it took a little bit of time for people to catch on. At BU, they're playing at the roof, and that was, you know, basically the size of a high school gym. They moved downstairs to Walter Brown, the hockey rink, for a while, um, but they had trouble drawing there. It was a very cold, unpleasant place to play a lot of ways. Um, the BC is playing at the Roberts Center before they built Conti Forum, and I heard three different people referred uh, tell me that it, to them it seemed like a bowling alley. So these were not really high-prestige <laughs> venues they were playing at uh, during this time period for the most part. BC drew pretty well. They were in the Big East. They had a pretty strong support base among alumni and people in the immediate area. But uh, Northeastern and BU both had a lot of trouble drawing for much of this time period, particularly BU. I mean, Rick Pitino in the early 80s would be on Com Ave handing out tickets like he was in the garage <laughs> band or something uh, to get people to come to their game. No, that's that's true. I, I remember that. And uh, I, I tell you what, uh, when uh, college basketball was at its hottest uh, in, in Boston, uh, really had nothing to do with those three schools or any other school. It had to do with the fact that local product Patrick Ewing 
was playing for Georgetown in the Big East against Boston College, and uh, uh, they had to move uh, those games between BC and Georgetown to the old Boston Garden because uh, it was packed every time Ewing would come in. And uh, some of those games were classics, but that, that's what really moved the needle uh, in college basketball in Boston. Oh, without question. Half of Cambridge would come over to cheer on Patrick Ewing at those games, there'd be tons of people wearing Georgetown stuff when they'd be playing at the Garden. Yeah, I mean, Georgetown had a lot of support suddenly, uh, locally. I go into quite a bit of detail about Ewing's recruitment in the book, and particularly his mentorship with Mike Jarvis, who coached him at Cambridge Ringe and Latin before going on to a storied career of his own as a college coach. Yeah, there's no doubt. There, there's so many things in, in this book, and uh, we'll, we'll try to unpack uh, more of them uh, during our time here this morning on Kale & Company. Our guest is Clayton Truder, and he is the uh, the author of the brand-new book, Just Out. And I'll tell you what, this would make a wonderful gift for the basketball fan uh, in your life because there's some, just some terrific stories in here. It's called uh, Boston Ball, Rick Pitino, Jim Calhoun, Gary Williams, and the Forgotten Cradle of Basketball Coaches. And I, I was looking online yesterday, Clayton, and uh, you have you have a deal if, if people uh, order this book uh, in you know today or, or you know in the next week or so. Yeah, absolutely. If you go to bit.ly, B-I-T period L-Y slash Boston Ball, and you use promo code 6AF23, you can save 40% off the cover price. And if you do buy the book, Look me up on, on social media. I'm there on Facebook. I'm on Twitter, all that kind of stuff. Send me a message, and I'll get you a signed book plate. Thanks for buying the book. Well, well, there you go. You, you can't do much more than that. And, again, it's uh, Clayton Truder, T-R-U-T-O-R. Don't miss this book. If, if you're a basketball fan or if someone in your life loves the, the history of basketball, these were three relatively fledgling coaches during their time in Boston, all three uh, went on to Hall of Fame careers. Uh, Clayton, hang in there. We're going to take a break in just a moment, and uh, we'll be back and talk more about Boston ball right after these words. It's Kale and Company Live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. We are presented by our good friends at Northeast Delta Dental. Learn more. Find your plan at Delta Dental coversme.com Back with Clayton Truder after these words on WKXL and htalkradio.com. Stay with us. Welcome back. Kale and Company live here on WKXL and htalkradio.com. We're chatting with Clayton Truder this morning, author of a great new book, Boston Ball, Rick Pitino, Jim Calhoun, Gary Williams, and the Forgotten Cradle of Basketball Coaches. And uh, Clayton, great to have you with us today. Tell us the meaning of the term Boston Ball. Well, Boston Ball refers to the style of play that these teams all adopted during the time period. I regard this book as being something of an origin story for modern college basketball. Because by the end of the 1970s, the college game had become increasingly dominated by big men. That if you were going to win, you had to recruit a Kareem, a Bill Walton, an Artis Gilmore, a Bob Lanier, a big guy in the middle who was going to dominate play. None of these schools were capable of recruiting those kind of elite 6'10", 7-foot big men. So they had to go in, oh, go in another direction. All three teams adopted a very up-tempo, aggressive style of play. Fast breaks, trapping, 
um, aggressive defensive play, um, full-court presses. And by Boston ball, that was a term that um, uh, Michael Madden at the Globe used to refer to the style of ball these teams all played it during this time period. And it refers to the adoption of that kind of aggressive, up-tempo basketball in, in the era during the time period. Earlier commentators had called it the city game, referring to the style of play one would see in field houses in the colleges of the Northeast Corridor. They would see on asphalt um, playgrounds, on, on courts across the Northeast as opposed to more of the big man basketball, which had been more common, say, in the bigger conferences in the Midwest. In many ways, this new style of play was almost something old. It was something Holy Cross had played in that style in the 40s and 50s. City College of New York, which had won the national title in 1950, played in this style. In many ways, the the early Celtics teams of Red Auerbach played in this style. So it was a move back towards, I guess you could call it small ball in a way, and it proved very successful for all of these coaches, not only in Boston, but also in their later stops. Gary Williams' team played very much in this style at Maryland. Patino at the half-dozen places he coached, his coached his teams played in this style. And very much so, UConn played in this style um, when Calhoun coached there, too. Um, once Calhoun went to Northeast and went to Connecticut, many people commented on how much these players at UConn resembled guys they'd seen play at Northeastern just a few years earlier. Um, so that, that's, what that, that's what Boston Ball refers to in the title. Yeah, and uh, it, it it certainly uh, it it, it uh, you know reinvigorated uh, college basketball basketball to a, to a certain extent. Let's let's talk about how each of these uh, three future Hall of Famers arrived to coach in Boston in the seventies and eighties. First was uh, Jim Calhoun, and uh, he grew up just south of Boston in uh, Braintree, Massachusetts. Yes, yeah, he ended up becoming a, he he went to AIC and played basketball there and coached at several high schools before ending up at Dedham High, which had been a perennial doormat in uh, Massachusetts high school basketball. In his second year there, he led them to a 22-1 record, and they got to the semifinals of the Tech Tournament, which used to be essentially the Eastern Massachusetts uh, high school basketball championships. And that helped him get noticed by Northeastern, who was desperately in need of a coach right as the 1972-73 season was about to start. Um, in one year, Northeastern went through three coaches. They had a longtime coach named Dick Dukeshire, who had gone to coach the Greek national team in the 72 Olympics, had gotten sick and had to step away from coaching. Um, his interim coach was a guy named Jim Bowman, who coached the team for one season, but left to join the FBI. He was 30 years old at the time, and that was the oldest you could join the FBI at the time. So he, he viewed being in the FBI as being a much more steady career for raising his family than, could been the, than college basketball. So he left. And two weeks before the start of the 72-73 season, Northeastern scrambled and picked Calhoun to be their new coach, a guy who had never really coached at the college level. And um, immediately in his first year, they go 19-7. and yeah. It's also a particularly tough situation, too, because Northeastern was transferring from what was Division II basketball, the college division, to the university division, which is now what they call, university, which is what they call Division One. So he had a roster that had guys who had been recruited to play Division II basketball playing Division One basketball, not all of them, but many of them, and was still able to find a way to succeed in that first year. Um, in a lot of the early years at Northeastern, um, the, the team struggles in part because they're trying to build up a recruiting base to be able to compete consistently at the Division One level. So Calhoun is facing all kinds of transitions and odd situations as he becomes the coach at Northeastern in the early 70s. When I, that's when I first came to know him when he was catch, uh, coaching in the uh, Tech Tournament, the Tech Tourney, 
at, at the old Boston Garden. They used to play the high school basketball tournament there for Eastern Massachusetts, and uh, that's when I first remembered uh, Jim Calhoun. And then in 72, when he took the job at Northeastern, little did he know, Clayton, that he would be uh, coaching Huskies in one form or another for 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, one thing that several of the people pointed out that I talked to, I did close to 100 interviews for the book, and I talked to people who played against him in college. I talked about people who were contemporaries of his at Northeastern. They knew he was a good coach, but the idea that he would go on to be arguably in the handful of greatest college coaches of all time would not have occurred to them in 1972. He was just the guy who was coming and filling in for a a school that needed a coach um, immediately. Yeah, no doubt about it. Tell us something. Is is there anything you found out that you you didn't know about uh, Jim Calhoun? You did extensive research, talked to over 100 people uh, for the book. Anything you found out about Jim Calhoun that that you didn't know before? I didn't know a lot about his upbringing. I mean, in many ways, he really is a story of, of human perseverance. I mean, his father died when he was fairly young. He had to be the man of the family as a teenager. I mean, he worked as a stone cutter for a couple years out of high school, um, cutting gravestones um, before going to college. He was playing um, recreation basketball at night, and the guy, the guy who was the coach at AIC saw him, and that's how he ended up getting a college scholarship. His, um, his, his high school coach, Fred Herget, uh, is the guy who encouraged him, just, just take this opportunity. Um, this, these don't come around all the time, so he, he very much credits his high school coach with getting him the shot at uh, – playing college ball where he became a Division II All-American and then eventually getting into coaching. Next to arrive on the scene of these gentlemen we're talking about was Rick Pitino in 1978 at BU. Uh, He took his first uh, full-time head coaching job after a couple of years uh, as an assistant at at Syracuse under Jim Boeheim. What was the future Celtics coach's uh, first experiences in Boston like uh, uh, with the Terriers. He was known at, at that time as the boy coach. Oh, very much so. He's 25 when he gets the job, and he looked about 13 at the time. Yeah. Um, when he when he first um, um, took the uh, he when he first uh, considered the BU job, Bayheim said, "Don't take that job. That's one of the worst jobs in the East. They don't support their coaches. They've only got like six scholarships. You're never going to win there." He goes, he impresses, uh, he impresses so much in his interview, he gets them to double the number of scholarships, he doubles their recruiting budget, and he even gets a car. It's not a particularly good car, he gets a Renault look car, as he often <laughs> jokes, but it was better than no car at all. I mean, he talked his way into a much more significant budget than the previous coach, so I think it has to be one of the great job interviews of all time. Um, BU had kind of struggled for a lot of the 70s. Um, they, they started to get a few good players, and he's able to build around them. But um, Patino, both in terms of his, his tremendous skill as, uh, as a head coach, his single-mindedness, and also his ability as a salesman is really what gets things going at BU. Um, I think from the time he was about 10 years old, this was a guy who wanted to be a college coach. I mean, he was born with a basketball in his hand. He was a hotshot player on Long Island. He later started at UMass for Jack Lehman's great teams as their point guard, playing alongside Al Skinner, who later coaches at BC, and was in the backcourt with Dr. J uh, in the NBA. But, uh, yeah, Pacino very quickly uh, moves up the rungs of coaches and uh, does fantastic at BU and goes on to be the Rick Pacino we all know. In many ways, it's the same guy now that you – I mean, the same guy you see in 2023 is the Rick Pacino of the mid-1970s. It's this guy of single-minded ambition and energy. 
Yep, and he's he's still at it, folks, uh, at St. John's now. And uh, he got uh, BU to their first NCAA tournament in 25 years in, in his final year, as it turned out, in uh, 83. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a particularly remarkable team because their best player had, had died the previous uh, September. They were playing pickup basketball, a guy named Arturo Brown, who almost certainly would have been a first-round pick in the NBA draft. He was from Brooklyn originally, was a remarkable athlete, a, a power forward who moved like a guard, and he, he apparently had a heart problem and died of a, he died of, a, died of a heart attack during a pickup game. And the team certainly rallied together and, and fought their way to the tournament uh, in 1983. Also, they're probably their second-best player, Gary Plummer, who ended up playing for the Detroit Pistons, uh, was injured for the, the latter part of that season, too. So this was certainly a team that persevered through a lot of uh, adversity. Yeah, no doubt about that. And uh, and then Rick Pitino uh, uh, left much to the uh, dismay uh, of uh, a lot of uh, Boston University players who, uh, you know, went elsewhere when uh, Pitino decided to leave. Yeah, several guys transferred. And the next coach, John Kuster, was another very young coach. He had been a uh, point guard for Dean Smith's UNC teams in the late 70s. Um, is apparently a very good coach. Technically, I think he was a bit inexperienced as a head coach at the time. He's had several other gigs since then, and um, I guess he just wasn't quite as ready as, as Patino was to become a head coach. One thing a couple of people said to me was he'd been so used to dealing with these kind of blue-blood players in the ACC, you know, guys at UNC and stuff, that coaching, BU had some very good players, but it wasn't necessarily the same level of players he was used to. I think he was also just trying to figure out his identity as a coach. He was maybe trying to be Dean Smith a little too much, which stylistically was very different from the kind of play BU had. And it, it just didn't work out there. But BU certainly got back on track when they hired Mike Jarvis, um, who'd been at Cambridge Ringe and Latin. And um, BU was very quickly back in the tournament and uh, one of the powers of that conference, which, which became the North Atlantic Conference by that time. Our guest is Clayton Truder. His uh, great new book is Boston Ball, Rick Pitino, Jim Calhoun, Gary Williams, and the Forgotten Cradle of Basketball Coaches, Boston, Massachusetts. Not really on the college basketball map for most, but uh, look what they had back in the uh, late 70s and, uh, and the 80s as well. We'll take a break. We'll continue. Kale and Company right here. WKXL NHTalkRadio.com. We are powered by Northeast Delta Dental. We'll be right back. We are back. Kale and Company live here on WKXL NHTalkRadio.com. Presented by Northeast Delta Dental. And today uh, we have Clayton Truder on the program and... Uh, as, as I mentioned, he's written a, a wonderful book, especially if you're into the basketball or uh, lived in Boston during this era. And uh, great for the basketball fan in your family for a terrific Christmas gift. Boston Ball, Rick Pitino, Jim Calhoun, Gary Williams, and the Forgotten Cradle of Basketball Coaches. And uh, Clayton, the last uh, coach of these three that arrived in Boston, uh, as a head coach was uh, Gary Williams. Uh, he arrived on the scene in 82, a couple of years uh, after a, a big a cheating scandal at uh, uh, Boston College. In fact, he was actually an assistant at BC in 77 and 78 before taking the head coaching job at American University and then going back to the Heights to, uh, to Boston College. Yeah, Gary Williams is in some ways 
the least well-known of these coaches. I mean, I, I think he didn't quite reach the heights of the other two and maybe not quite the same level of public uh, public notoriety. But uh, Williams had a, had a fantastic career of his own. He's a guy from New Jersey originally. He played at Maryland, uh, where he was the starting point guard for three years. There he hooked up with Dr. Tom Davis, who was a graduate student in history at the time, who also went on to be a fabulous college coach. And Tom Davis later coached at BC, coached at Stanford, he coached at Iowa. I think he actually belongs in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Yeah. He was a real innovator strategically with adapting the zone offense, which became a very common tactic in the 80s and 90s. Uh, Davis's first head coaching job was at Lafayette, and he tried to bring along uh, Gary Williams, who was at the time a high school coach in Camden, New Jersey. And uh, Williams was initially um, hesitant to take the job. He was going to be paid less, for one thing, than he was as a high school teacher. And um, he was eventually convinced by Davis to take the job, saying there's no other route for college coaching. You really don't have a lot of other contacts. Come with me. When he gets to Lafayette College in Pennsylvania, he says, oh, by the way, you're going to have to coach the soccer team. And Gary Williams, who had never played soccer in his life, was the head, head soccer coach of a Division One soccer team, Lafayette, for five years, while also serving as assistant basketball coach. The money in the athletic budget was half for an assistant basketball coach, half for a head soccer coach. So he had to really rely on his players. When he got there, he said, look, I don't know about soccer. I know about conditioning from basketball. You're going to have to teach me the soccer element. And he was basically a 500 coach, uh, college coach, coaching soccer, a sport he knew very little about, um, just as he was getting into uh, his basketball coaching career. Lafayette becomes very successful, goes to the NIT a couple of times. Tom Davis gets hired at Boston College. Uh, uh, Gary Williams is an assistant there for one year. He moves on and becomes the head coach at American University, a school that played at a, in Washington, D.C., that played at a National Guard armory um, in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, he gets them to the NIT, and um, Davis ends up leaving after the 81-82 season. Uh, you alluded to the point-shaving scandal that happens when, when Davis is there. That's basically three players on the team. Really nobody else knows about it until there's a Sports Illustrated profile a couple of years later. Henry Hill from you know Goodfellas, yeah. fame, who's covered in that, played by Ray Liotta, uh, tells his story about how he was in contact with these players at BC. He thought it was Boston University actually when he was talking to the uh, to the guy at Sports Illustrated. He was writing the story with the guy at Sports Illustrated thought there aren't lines on Boston University basketball <laughs> games. He realized it had to be BC because they were playing major conference basketball. And, um, uh, yeah, that story broke in the 81-82 season, and it's unclear exactly why Davis left, but that's almost certainly part of it, just all of the all of the blowback from that. I mean, Davis played no part of it. The guys on the 81-82 team played no part on it. But no matter where they went in the Big East, people were throwing razors at them and spraying shaving cream at them because of, you know, the point-shaving aspect of it. Yeah, they yeah. go on and make it to the final eight um, of that year. Um, but he ends up leaving for uh, – Davis ends up leaving for Stanford and Gary Williams is the immediate target for that job, and he comes in and, and does very well, keeps that thing going. Uh, I mean, Gary, Day, Gary, Gary Williams goes to the Sweet 16 twice at Boston College. Um, they're always a very underestimated team. They often had to recruit in places that other Big East schools wouldn't. They weren't getting the Patrick Ewings. They weren't getting the all of the kind of guys going to five-star camp uh, at, at their schools as the other big-time schools, Villanova and Syracuse and St. John's and Georgetown were. Um, they had a, a guy named Kevin Mackey, who was an assistant coach, who was a particularly good recruiter in that time period, who brought in a lot of excellent players from Connecticut who ended up starring big time at BC and playing a big role in their success. Uh, Michael Adams, John Bagley, Jay Murphy, John Garris, all four of these guys end up in the NBA, and none of them were particularly heavily recruited out of high school. 
and played a major role in BC's success in the Big East. Actually, BC twice won the regular season uh, title during this time period in the Big East. So they are kind of the forgotten power of the early years of the conference. And though Gary Williams is only at BC for four years, his team was typically picked toward the bottom of the league, but really found a way to make it happen while he was there and continue on the success that Tom Davis got going there in the late 70s and early 80s. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. Uh, you know, I, I want to ask you, uh, Clayton, if, if you were a uh, recruited high school basketball player, uh, which, which of these coaches w- would you want to play for? Have you thought about that at all? I, I've, thought, I've thought about it a lot. I spoke with two of the three guys. I spoke with Gary Williams and I spoke with Jim Calhoun. I think I play for Jim Calhoun. There's just, I, I, first of all, I think he's the second best college coach of all time behind John Wooden. He goes on, he wins three national titles. That program has won a bunch more. I mean, UConn had been a very good program in Eastern power in the, in the 60s and the 50s uh, with Hugh Greer and then some later coaches, but they were hardly one of the blue bloods of college basketball. I mean, Wooden clearly won his 10 national titles. The other competitors for that, Bobby Knight, Mike Krzyzewski, Dean Smith, those guys that were coaching programs that had long been national programs of significance. Jim Calhoun comes into a program that had kind of faded a bit in the Big East, had been good regionally in the East, but was certainly not one of the handful of great programs in the country. So I think what he accomplished there, just winning multiple national titles and making them the power of the later days of the Big East, I think I'd put him number two. And I also just, he was a great guy to talk to as well. I mean, I had a good chat with Gary Williams, but talking with Jim Calhoun, we talked for like two hours. Wow. It was like sitting sitting down with a buddy at the Elks Club or something and having a beer. <laughs> he was a very, he, he certainly has the gift of gab. He's, he's great to talk to. So I think, I think he would be my, my pick. Number two of all time behind John Wooden. Wow. That, that is saying something. That is really well, sad. I, mean, I, think, I think there's a lot of guys you could put there. He, he's, he's my pick. Your pick. And I, I think it's a good pick because I'm, I'm a UConn fan. And he, he, of course, he had a great career at UConn, no doubt about that. Hall of Fame career there. Uh, and then he took a little time off and then uh, went back to a coach at, at a very much smaller school in Connecticut, St. Joseph. Yeah, the, the Blue Jays found themselves in the tournament all the time when he was there. And they certainly became a program of significance at that level of college basketball, in part just having him associated with it. And I think it's been been great for the school in a broader sense, too. I mean, a lot of smaller Catholic colleges are struggling in this time period to you know to keep their enrollment up, and I think it was certainly a boost for them, in a sense, beyond basketball, too. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. With having a high-profile coach like uh, Jim Calhoun uh, running your program, uh, that that is uh, for sure. Uh now, you talked with over 100 people uh, in, in researching this book. I, I would guess maybe Coach Calhoun is, is your favorite uh, out, of, out of the 100. Who else, who else did, you, did you talk to during the process? I, I had a great chat with Mike Jarvis. Uh, I talked with Jim O'Brien. Uh, I talked with Al Skinner. I talked with a lot of players on, on the different teams. Um, one of my favorite guys to talk to, he passed away last year. His name is Bill Stanton. was a player at BU in the 70s. Uh, was just just a hilarious guy to talk to. We ended up talking several times just beyond um, beyond the uh, just interview for the book. I just enjoyed shooting the breeze with him. Um, there was a guy named Stu Primus who played at BC in the '80s, who was a fantastic player, kind of underrated historically. Had a lot of great chats with him. Um, really enjoyed talking with Michael Adams at BC. Um, yeah. BU, there are a lot of great guys at BU. I talked to as well. I really liked a guy named Gene Jones, who was a guard there. We had a great chat. Uh, Jay Twyman, he's the son of Jack Twyman, who's the NBA Hall of Fame. Sure. Great guy, had a wonderful chat. Um, 
guy named Ed Leibowitz, who was an assistant coach under the previous regime at BU, really helped me set the context very well. Um, they're, they're all three guys, all three teams that group of great guys and, and really enjoyed talking with all of them. I also talked with a lot of players from opposing teams too. I think I talked with probably 15 opponents of the schools, a mix of guys who played against BU and Northeastern in the ECAC North. And, and, and then also guys who played against uh, BC in the big East. So I think that gave me a broader sense of the way these teams were perceived by their opponents as well. Well, the early reviews are in, and this book is being given some great praise from the likes of uh, renowned writer and author Ian O'Connor and the co-founder of the Orlando Magic, Pat Williams. And uh, those guys know their basketball. And uh, this is just a a wonderful book, Clayton, and I'm so glad that we had the chance to uh, catch up uh, this morning. And again, uh, quickly give uh, our, our listeners... Uh, the information is if uh, they uh, want to buy a book. Absolutely. Th- thank you, Ken. It's available broadly at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and all the well-known online book retailers. But if you want to save 40% off the cover price, go to bit.ly slash bostonball, B-I-T period L-Y slash bostonball. Use promo code 6AF23 and you'll save 40% off the cover price. Get in touch with me on social media and I'll happily send you a book play, a signed book play to thank Thank you so much for having me on. Outstanding. Again, it's Clayton Truder, T-R-U-T-O-R. And a terrific guy. And uh, have you back anytime, Clayton. One, one of these days, I, I want you to make the trek from Norwich down here to Concord and, and have you in studio. I promise I will. Very good. And the book again, Boston Ball, Rick Pitino, Jim Calhoun, Gary Williams, and the Forgotten Cradle of Basketball Coaches. Thanks so much, Clayton. Have a great day. Thank you. You as well, Ken. Take care. All right. We'll take a break. And then, hey, the fun does not stop here on the program. John Leahy coming up next to talk a little hockey East. And uh, we'll do that right after these words. Kale and Company, WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Welcome back, Kale and Company live here on WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. And we welcome back to the program one of the busiest guys in the world of hockey broadcasting, the one and only John Leahy. John, great to have you with us. Ken, the pleasure is mine, as always. Uh, wonderful to talk to you on this Tuesday morning. You're always busy doing uh, one hockey game or another, you know, uh, all kinds of levels of hockey uh, in, in New England, and uh, you do pretty much all of them. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it's been a crazy week. Uh, four games in four days between all the uh, action I'm calling here. So uh, I'd rather be busy than bored, Ken, so that, it's all good. I, I agree. I, I feel exactly the same way. So. Let's catch up with what took place uh, over this past weekend in uh, in Hockey East. UNH was off uh, this past weekend, but Merrimack was not. Tell us about uh, the Warriors over the weekend, John. Yes, Ken. Well, uh, Merrimack took on the Yukon Huskies, and uh, it was a home-and-home series. Merrimack got to visit the uh, brand-new Toscano Ice Forum down in Storrs, Connecticut, relatively brand-new anyway. And the Warriors went down Friday night and uh, picked up a 6-3 to win. And Saturday, in the return match at Lala Rink, uh, UConn was able to bounce back with a 4-3 to win. It was a, an up-and-down game. UConn uh, had the 3-1 to lead. Merrimack would battle back. But UConn won it with 48 seconds mm-hmm. to play 
on a goal by Andrew Lucas, the former Vermont Catamount, who's had some big goals for the Huskies since joining the UConn club. And uh, Merrimack saw some points get away on Saturday night, but uh, and when the smoke cleared, uh, both Merrimack and UConn picked up three points on the weekend. There you go. Uh, so uh, an, an even split, 50-50, and uh, the Providence College Friars uh, remain on top of the uh, Hockey East standings. Yes, the Providence having a, a terrific start uh, to the season. The uh, Friars uh, this past week played uh, a couple of games, and uh, they uh, swept the Northeastern Huskies, winning 2-1 to one at home and then 5-2 to two, uh, up in Boston. The Friars have won three in a row. Providence hasn't lost since the second game of the year, which was a 5-4 loss at Michigan. And so they are on uh, quite the streak, and they're 7-0-2 in their last nine games. The Friars sit atop. Hockey East, they have a three-point lead over BU, and uh, Providence will, will be playing UMass this weekend, and uh, Thursday night's game is on Ness, and I'll be doing that on Providence Radio, but uh, a couple of good Ness and games this weekend, and uh, so there'll be no shortage of uh, hockey to watch. No, that that is for sure, and uh, and that's a good thing. There, there can never be enough hockey to watch, whether it be uh, live or on on TV. Uh, the women's side of the ledger and uh, at Boston College uh, has a uh, has a narrow lead in in the women's standings over the UConn Huskies. Yes, BU, BC has a one point lead uh, over UConn. The Eagles swept uh, last weekend. And uh, BC and BU will meet uh, this week at uh, Conti Forum, so that's always fun. The uh, Terriers, under their new head coach, Tara Watchorn, have uh, 10 points. Uh, but again, it's a, it's a great race. There's uh, 10 points separating teams 1 through 7. And uh, Boston College right now uh, is uh, ranked on the women's side. They're uh, 15th in both national polls. And so uh, in terms of the polls, Ken, uh, still, Hockey East is very well represented. On the, on the men's side, you've got six teams ranked in USA Hockey Poll. You've got uh, six teams also ranked in the USCHO, including UNH, by the way. They're 13th in the nation right now. And on the women's side, you've got five teams ranked in the uh, USA Poll and uh, four in the USCHO Poll. But uh, 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 it was a great week for UConn. They picked up a sweep. They were the only team to do so. And... Uh, Again, you've got 10 points separating teams, one through seven. So uh, the action is heating up in hockey. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we, we didn't mention, I don't think, that uh, a UNH men's hockey team ranked number 13 in both, uh, both of the national polls. Wildcats will be uh, having a home-and-home -home series against Northeastern Friday and Saturday. And uh, Friday's matchup will be at Matthews Arena for the men and uh, Saturday night at the, uh, at the Whittemore Center. So uh, a big series in Northeastern. Uh, the men have uh, fallen on some hard times this year. Yeah, the Huskies trying to regroup. They lost some uh, great talent last year. Devin Levi, their goaltender, went to the NHL with the Buffalo Sabres. And uh, Aiden McDonough, who was a Vancouver Canuck draft choice, also left the program. But uh, I really firmly believe this Northeastern team still has a ton of talent. And uh, it's, gotten them, uh, it's gotten them a little bit to get their traction going here. But uh, I think the Huskies will be heard from uh, before all is said and done. So UNH will certainly have their hands full. It'll, be, it'll wrap up the season series uh, between UNH and Northeastern as uh, the Wildcats and Huskies met earlier this season up at the Whittemore Center, a game in which UNH won. But uh, I was mentioning uh, the Nesson schedule this weekend. Uh, Merrimack will also, uh, actually be on Nesson tomorrow night when they host UMass Lowell. Yep. Wow. And uh, then you've got UMass and Providence the Thursday night on Nesson. So 
So back-to-back games. Unfortunately, I'm going to be uh, working both of those games. So um, if you want to see some great uh, hockey East action, flip on over to Nesson the next two nights. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, Wednesday night, uh, UMass Lowell. And uh, Saturday night, uh, y- you will be at uh, at UMass Lowell at the uh, at the Songa Center. Well, the team will be there. I won't be no, because you, you... we don't uh, we don't travel on the road, unfortunately. But the team will be uh, in Lowell, and uh, that should be a tremendous weekend of hockey. The Warriors and the Riverhawks are geographical rivals. Uh, they're only eight miles between campuses. And uh, this will be the only two times this year that the Warriors and the Riverhawks meet. So uh, if you want to catch game one, it'll be on Nesson uh, tomorrow night. And if you want to catch game two, flip on over to ESPN Plus where you'll see the Lowell uh, broadcast crew call that the Warrior Riverhawk game on Saturday night. Uh, all right. So plenty of, uh, yeah, ESPN Plus, uh, I mean, and, and Nesson uh, do uh, terrific jobs of uh, covering college hockey, uh, Nesson, uh, especially uh, in New England. And uh, if you want to see virtually any game, any college hockey game at, at uh, you know, top level, uh, ESPN Plus is the, is the app to have if you're a college hockey aficionado because uh, you'd be kept quite busy with the number of games they have on there. And the beautiful thing, Ken, is uh, if you can't watch a game live, you can go back on demand. Yeah. You, you can catch uh, any game. As I did with uh, the game you did on PA at UNH earlier this year against Quinnipiac, <laughs> I, I had to go back and hear those golden tones uh, yeah. reverberating around the Whittemore Center. So, uh, yeah, you do have that option, and, uh, and it's a great, great uh, uh, channel to watch. Yep, no, no doubt about that. Well, well worth the uh, the investment if you're a, a fan of college hockey. You you could you, you could watch games like twenty four seven throughout. And, the co- <laughs> yeah, and, and not only that, Ken, you get more than college hockey. You get the oh NHL, yeah, you, oh yeah. You get the NHL. You get Major League Baseball. Uh, pretty much anything you want on there. It's a modest investment. I think it's like ten bucks a month. Oh yeah, for all, for all that. Can you imagine? Did you ever think, John, when we when we were kids? When we were kids, John, and you're you're a lot younger than I am, but did you ever think we'd just be able uh, on our phones uh, to be able to watch literally hundreds of games for like ten bucks a month? Did you ever think that would happen? Well, you know, we grew up in the age of uh, the black and white TV and the rabbit ears. And you had to stand in one corner of the room for the reception to, to uh, be good. The UHF, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we certainly have come a long way. And uh, the ease of which you can access this stuff is really amazing. So right. uh, yeah. I'm grateful for the chance to be able to broadcast on ESPN Plus. And uh, the entire league is... is uh, is on there, so yeah. you won't miss a single second of the action if you tune in. And that 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 is for sure. And and uh, John, I know you, I know you're a Patriots fan as well. It's tough to be one of those uh, these days. But uh, I'm just going to ask you your, your thoughts. What would you do for quarterback when they return on the 26th at the New York Giants? I'll tell you what, Ken. I think they come back with Mac Jones. Uh, you know, in spite of the struggles he's had. Uh, I'm convinced that, you know, he's he's the best quarterback they have on the roster. So I think you've got to uh, hold the course with him. I think that would shock the world if they did that. But you know what? You you, you may be onto something, John Leahy, as you usually are. And it's uh, <laughs> always great to have you on the program updating uh, Hockey East men's and women's. I know you have a busy week in store with all kinds of hockey Hockey East and uh, and uh, amateur hockey as well at the at the junior level, 
John, you're a busy guy, and uh, I'm glad you have a chance to spend a few minutes with us every week. Ken, it's always my pleasure. I'll always clear my calendar for you, and I appreciate the opportunity. All right. John Leahy, the longtime voice of the Merrimack College Hockey Warriors in action uh, tomorrow night. And uh, that will be on Nesson. And uh, that'll do it. Thanks to John. Thanks to Clayton Truder. Uh, thanks to you, especially, for tuning in. And uh, if, you, if you missed part of the show, want to hear it again, even if you didn't miss it and want to hear it again, 7 o'clock tonight, just right after the 7 o'clock uh, block here on WKXL, you'll hear this show again. That'll do it. Thanks to Clayton. Thanks to John. Thanks to you. And remember, folks, always look on the bright side of life. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Have a great Tuesday, everybody. Mm-hmm.